0: Eric Greitens is a Rhodes Scholar, decorated Navy SEAL, celebrated author, and even a championship boxer. And now he wants to add another title to his already impressive resume: Governor of Missouri. The Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking.
1: Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five-ish. four, three, two, two one. one. Uh, I think that is fair as to I say, say. Hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but you uh, know, <laughs> I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question.
0: Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is
2: colleague
1: Joe Manis.
0: and our very special guest for the day we have.
1: That's Eric Greitens, Navy SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe.
0: That is the most excitable introduction I've ever heard on this show. We're off to a great start. I think this will be
1: fun. We'll have a good time today, guys. Okay.
2: So um, as our listeners probably know, Greitens is a Republican, although some Republicans dispute that, but we'll let him just explain that and uh but and he's also originally from st louis you're one among of several candidates at least three who have st louis where do you reside title. right now
1: by the way so Sheen and i live here in st louis which is especially nice because we have an 18 month old son joshua and another kid on the way this coming well, june so thank you very much so we love being close to my parents yeah. who actually come over quite a bit to see Joshua.
0: well congratulations so. on thank the you. on the announcement of the the impending birth of your second child thank you we want to look know a little bit more about you. I I know that um, your life story has been kind of broadcast throughout the nation and around the world, but let us know a little bit about who Eric Greitens is and kind of his experience before he decided to enter this wacky world of Missouri politics.
2: And the all important question of where you went to high school. Of course. Well, we'll answer
1: that first, Joe. I went to Parkway North High School. Yes. And
2: one of his teachers was Meryl Singer, who is the wife of one of our other reporters here, Dale, Dale Singer. Singer. Dale Singer, yes. Merle is
1: a fantastic teacher. And
0: Parkway so. North is the alma mater of many of my good friends, including uh, Epen Thampy, uh, Josh Kransberg, and Brian Goldstein. So I want to give a shout out to all my Vikings <laughs> out there. Go
1: Vikings. Yeah, you know, Jason, I, I am. I'm a native Missourian. Uh, I am a Navy SEAL. As many people know, I did four tours in the global war on terrorism to Iraq, Afghanistan, Southeast Asia, and the Horn of Africa. Uh, I am a businessman. Uh, As we discuss, most importantly, I'm a very proud husband uh, and father. Um, I was born and raised here in St. Louis, had a fantastic uh, public education. My parents didn't have a lot of money for college. My mom was an early childhood special education teacher. My dad worked for the Department of Agriculture. But I was able to earn some earn some scholarships to college. I uh, went off to Duke University, and there I studied public policy studies. I also started boxing. So it was a great boxing gym down really? in Durham. Yeah, I did. I did. I started boxing uh, in Durham. It's a great boxing gym down in Durham, North Carolina. So I would be studying on campus in the afternoon and then I'd hop in my car and drive down into the city. And my boxing coach was a guy named Earl Blair. Uh, Earl had grown up, tail end of the Depression, served in the military at the end of World War II, and Earl had spent a lot of his life raising young men through boxing. Now, I was the only college student in the boxing gym, but trained down there for three years, and Earl was a great coach. He used to always say to me and to a lot of the men who he trained, he used to always say, if you want different, do different. If you wanted to get a different result from your life, then you're going to have to take different action. It's actually something we've been saying a lot on the campaign trail, yeah. is that if we want to get a different result from our government, then we are going to have to take action. But I loved boxing. I spent many years doing it.
2: Now, is this then, a warning to the other candidates for governor okay. to beware on the debate stage?
1: <laughs> I, I, we're, we're excited about debating them, but they're not going to have to worry about boxing. What they are going to have to worry about is that they're going to have to face somebody who's not a career politician. They're going to have to face somebody who's a Proven leader, they're going to have to face somebody who's gotten a lot of results, and I think uh, that that might that might inspire some fear.
0: <laughs> it, it could, it could. I want to uh, touch on your military experience sure, because we had. Uh, I think about six months, eight months, uh, maybe around a year ago, Representative Stephen Weber on the show. He's a Democrat from Columbia. He was was in the Marines. He served in two terms in Iraq.
2: He's now running for the state Senate.
0: Two tours in Iraq. I apologize. And I asked him a pretty simple question why he decided to join the military, because as as I'm sure you know, during the war on terror, there was no draft. People who decided to go into the military decided to go by choice. I want to play this clip and then I'll ask a similar question to you.
1: Sure, Jason. I was in in boot camp when the, the actual invasion started. Um, I was against it from the beginning.
0: I thought it was just a mind-blowingly bad idea. Um, but I, I have a, I guess I do have a very strong sense of um, um, citizenship um, and the idea that we are all in this together and that we make decisions as a country. And that was the decision we made. It was a choice that this country made to invade Iraq. Um, that uh, I should do my part in it. Um, and. I also thought that I, I could, and I think it, as the story plays out, I think I could contribute some. I think I did a good job. I went back a second time. I was a squad leader, and I think that uh, um, I was able to help some other Marines um, get through the process and get through the get through the war, which I think is incredibly valuable. So I want to ask a similar question to you. like When did you decide to join the military, and what was your thought process when you decided to— You know, become a Navy SEAL essentially. Jason,
1: I I joined the military January 20th, 2001. It was actually before uh, September 11th. And I joined the military because I wanted to serve my country. Um, As I mentioned, I had been incredibly fortunate growing up here in St. Louis, got a great education, was able to earn scholarships to college and then later to graduate school. And I feel like there comes a point in your life when you have to make a decision about what you're going to do. And I remember. For me, that that moment came at the end of my time at Oxford. I'd written a PhD about how international humanitarian organizations could work with kids in war zones, and I had to make a decision about what I was going to do next, and I basically had three options in front of me. Uh, One option was that I had a a company that offered me that they would pay me more money uh, than both of my parents combined had ever made. Uh, The university offered that I could stay and teach, and then I had this deal from the United States Navy. And the, the U.S. Navy said, they said, if you join the Navy, they said, we will pay you $1,332.68 per month.
0: What? Such a deal. <laughs> <laughs> they, also
1: said, they also said, they said, the minute that you sign up on the dotted line, uh, you're going to owe us eight years. They said, in return for that, we're gonna give you one and only one chance at basic underwater demolition SEAL training. It's the basic Navy SEAL training. As you guys know, it has a reputation for being the hardest military training in the yeah. world. They said, only 10% of the candidates who start this training actually make it through. They said, if you make it through, you'll be on your way to being a Navy SEAL. But if you don't, you're still gonna owe us eight years and we're gonna tell you where and how you're gonna serve. Now, the reality is, it's not really a great recruiting pitch. <laughs> But, but the reason I took an oath to defend our country and defend our constitution is because I do think that there comes a point in all of our lives when we have to make a decision to stand up and to fight for what we believe in, and uh, for me that moment came. Uh, that uh, moment came, and I, I was I was proud to join the military.
0: So when you made
1: that decision, it,
0: yes. it changed your life forever because yes. joining before September 11th meant that it, through that eight-year commitment. I, from what I've read, you were in Iraq a few times. I think you were in Afghanistan. You were in Southeast Asia, and you were in the Horn of Africa. And I, I think that you saw some pretty heavy-duty combat. I'm sure you saw things that many civilians don't ever see. Like, how did that affect your life and your mindset going forward?
1: Well, it, it has, it has a, a major effect. And, and one thing I will tell you, and this just picks up on, on what uh, I heard, heard on the clip, you have the opportunity to serve with incredible Americans from all over this country. And they come together, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich, poor, from every corner of this country, they all come together to serve. And I did. I did four deployments. I was in Afghanistan in 2003. Uh, Southeast Asia in 2004, where I was the commander of a Mark V detachment. A Mark V is an 82-foot, really fast boat that has a bunch of guns and sensors on it. We did counterterrorism operations there. Um, I worked in the Horn of Africa in 2005 as the commander of a joint special operations task unit. And then 2006, 2007, I was in Iraq. And When I was in Iraq, I was serving as the commander of an al-Qaeda targeting cell. So as the commander of an al-Qaeda targeting cell, my unit's mission was to capture mid to senior level al-Qaeda leaders. Uh, we'd go out and we'd run capture-kill operations every night against mid to senior level al-Qaeda leaders. And my life did change profoundly uh, throughout all of that service, but it was also the case March 28, 2007, uh, my team had been on an, on an operation until about 2 o'clock that morning. At 6 o'clock that morning, we came under attack, a couple mortar rounds came in, and my team was actually hit by a suicide truck bomb. Now, I ended up being okay. I was taken later that morning to the Fallujah Surgical Hospital. I was treated there. I was able to return to full duty 72 hours later. But a lot of my friends, some of whom are sitting an arm's length away from me, were hurt a lot worse than I was. And so when I came home, I went to Bethesda, to the Naval Hospital, to visit with some recently returned wounded Marines. And you walk into one of those hospital rooms, you're talking with very young men and women. They are often 19, 20, 21 years old. And I walked in, I asked everybody a little bit about their units, about their deployments. We joked a little bit about our different hometowns. And then I said to each one of them, I said, tell me, what do you want to do when you recover? And they all said to me, I want to return to my unit. They all said, I want to return to my unit. Now, the harsh reality was for a lot of those men and women is that they were not going to be able to return to their unit. Uh, one guy lost both of his legs, another lost use of his right arm, part of his right lung, another lost a good part of his hearing. And what I had learned doing the humanitarian work or working with kids in Cambodia who'd lost limbs to landmines, working in one of Mother Teresa's homes for the destitute and dying, working with kids who were street children in Bolivia, was that in situations of tremendous hardship and tremendous difficulty, the most serious injury for people isn't a physical injury. The most serious injury comes when people lose their sense of purpose when they lose their sense of team and their sense of meaning. And that's what was happening to the men and women who I was visiting in the hospital. You know, we have some honorable and heroic people in the VA. Let's be very clear, some honorable and heroic people in the VA. But it is now also, unfortunately, a giant government bureaucracy. We spent over $160 billion on it last year. It has 325,000 full-time employees. And what they would say to me, Jason, and they'd say to my fellow veterans is they'd say, look, if you're 60% disabled, we will pay you as if you're 100% disabled as long as you don't work. So all of the incentives were aligned the wrong way so that my friends who had come home, who are proud, productive people came home and they got stuck in this system that was almost designed to make them think as if they were disabled and a burden for the rest of their lives. So I walked out of the hospital room that day, called a couple of my friends, told them a little bit about what I had seen, and we decided that we were gonna do something about it. We were gonna change this. So um, I donated my combat pay from Iraq. They put in money from their disability checks, and that's how we started the Mission Continues.
0: Tell us a little bit about Mission Continues, because I think it started off as kind of a, um, I don't want to say a fledgling effort, but definitely a small-scale effort that's grown exponentially over the last few years
1: actually to call it fledgling would be a huge compliment for where it was at the the very beginning you're you're exactly right i mean look at the very beginning when we started this i had an idea that i wanted to change one life i wanted to save one life i wanted to do something for my fellow veterans who were coming home and i was living uh, here in missouri empty apartment on an air mattress with this idea that we could make sure that as veterans came home Every single one of them could find a way to come back home and live a life of purpose and dignity and meaning again here at home. It was a big mission, but we started by trying to change just one life. And and if you want, I'll tell you just one really quick story. The first veteran who we worked with here in Missouri was a guy named Tim Smith. Now, Tim, kid from South St. Louis, joined the United States Army. He's overseas serving in Iraq. Tough deployment sees eight of his friends killed one day, and other friends carried off the battlefield wounded and disabled. When Tim came home, he was dealing with some physical injuries. He also found himself every night, he's waking up, he's looking for his rifle underneath his bed, he's having some trouble relating to his wife, to his one young son, and Tim was struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I believe that if you really want to lead, then when you sit down with people, you have to be willing to tell them not just what they want to hear, but also what they need to hear. And when I sat down with Tim, I said to him, I said, Tim, Look, you have a tremendous amount still to offer to our state, our community, our country, but you are also gonna have to make some tough decisions and better choices. We put Tim through our program at The Mission Continues, where we asked all of our veterans to go back into our communities and serve again. They worked at Habitat for Humanity, at Big Brothers Big Sisters, at Boys and Girls Clubs. They started to serve again in the community. As they did so, they started to rebuild a sense of purpose. At the same time, we connected them with private sector mentors. Today, Tim Smith, who could have spent the rest of his life on welfare and disability, instead, he runs his own business. It's a business right here in Missouri, Patriot Commercial Cleaning. He's got 49 commercial cleaning contracts, and he's hired 42 other veterans. And what we've, we did this you know, with Tim Smith, and then we did it with another veteran and another veteran. Today, as we sit here, we're working with 5,000 veterans around the country, and we've had over 100,000 people who've come out to volunteer with us, to serve with us, to become part of this movement, to make sure that every veteran who comes home is welcomed home, now, the,
0: the obvious question is here. You can you can list all the things that you've done in your life. Navy SEAL, businessman, Mission Continues founder, boxer. Um, author. I, author as well. You've written three, I think, very well-received books. You, Why would you want to go into Missouri politics and run for governor? It seems like it might be more trouble than it's worth, you know, for the, the average person.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, it's certainly it's certainly a tough mission, but we're taking this mission on because we, be, we believe, and I believe, that government is broken in Missouri. That it's no longer government that really serves people and works for people in Missouri, and that instead we have too many people who are struggling around Missouri, people who are hurting. And I believe that we haven't, in, in Jefferson City, too often we've had a lot of corrupt insiders well-paid lobbyists, politicians who've been there for a long time, who've really forgotten what it means to solve problems and to help people. What I also know is that we have tremendous people around the state, and I believe that with quality leadership we can turn Missouri around. I believe that with quality leadership, we can build a Missouri that we are proud to pass on to our kids. And I believe that with quality leadership, we can see that our best days are still ahead of us here in Missouri. You know, when we started this with The Mission Continues, people said, how are you possibly, with a giant VA bureaucracy, with everything that's happening, how can you possibly change the way that this generation of veterans is welcomed home? And we said, we're going to do this one life at a time. We're going to go out, and we're going to change one life. We're going to do it one life at a time. And in this campaign, we're doing the same thing. We're going out. We're meeting with volunteers. We're talking with voters. And we're building this campaign by talking with real people around Missouri.
2: Now, there are several governors in other states who have not held any other political office before. Correct. I'm thinking like Rick Scott in Florida, you know, Rauner in Illinois next right. door, Rick Snyder in Michigan, if I'm yep, correct. You're correct. <laughs> and- um, they've had kind of mixed re- they're all three republicans in this case but they've had kind of mixed results some of them have come under fire over the years scott in particular um the uh, the basic complaint has been that they didn't know enough about government and that they don't understand some things and when that when you're a big ceo or whatever you have a different uh, relationship with the people under you than you do you your governor i'm and some of the your Republican rivals are already doing some whispering about that. I think um, how even though you're not the only one of the Republican candidates who hasn't held office before, I'm interested in your take on how you respond to that, on how you would be able to yeah. come in to Jeff City when you've never been there in any capacity at all?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the question is really about how do you understand problems and how do you create solutions? And that that's what I've done my whole life as a Navy SEAL doing humanitarian work, working with veterans. And the answer to that is you have to go to the front lines. I actually think the problem is that politicians in Jefferson City aren't actually out on the front lines. And we're doing this, we're, you know, so for example, as part of the campaign, I went down and I worked a shift in the emergency room at Cox Hospital in Springfield. Because I wanted to see what does it actually look like to see patients who are coming in, one every four minutes, seven out of eight of whom don't need to be in the emergency room. I actually went out with our police officers and I did a raid on a drug house because I wanted to see what this actually looked like. With my campaign just two weeks ago, we gathered our volunteers and we went out to Arnold, Missouri and we did flood cleanup. We worked out there for hours, actually cleaning out a couple of of couples, cleaning out their basements, helping people who needed help. What I found is if you're willing to go to the front lines and you're willing to see what real people are seeing, you have a genuine understanding of the problems, which helps you to create a solution. You know, just the other day, for example, I I was down at at Roberson Elementary School. It's a school in in Springfield, Missouri. There's a young girl there. She's in third grade and both of her parents are meth addicts. Now you think about what it takes to actually help, and this girl, talk about courage and resilience, she shows up to school every single day. But in order to understand how to help her, you have to talk to her parents and her principal and leaders in her in her church community and in her community. You have to talk with her foster parents. You have to see what the real struggles are that she's facing. One of the reasons in my experience why the VA, the giant government bureaucracy, didn't work for my friends is that there was this cookie-cutter solution that was imposed on all of them. What we did at The Mission Continues was we built real solutions for real people that actually changed their lives. We did the same thing in the SEAL teams. Every mission was different. But because you were on the front lines, you could see what was happening. And I'm bringing that same ethic of going to the front lines to serve into uh, into this race.
2: Well, specifically, like when yes. you look at Missouri, what do you see as the very specific uh, problems? I mean, you, you, you heard the governor's State of the State address last week. I'm just interested in kind of what you see as the top two or three, four problems.
1: Yeah, very specifically jobs. We have to build an economy here in Missouri that's going to create more private sector paychecks and bigger private sector paychecks. You know, we are 47th in GDP growth over the course of the last decade. We are 43rd in wage growth. We are 42nd in job growth. We have to do better on jobs. Number two, safety and security people are really concerned about this, not just at a national level, but they're also concerned about what's happening here in Missouri. And if you want, we can talk a little bit about Ferguson and, that was and, my, be and my next my, thing my I was experience talk out about there. That, yeah. I, I will also mention, though, a third thing that's very important to me, and you probably saw we, we, we put it out, Jason, is ethics. We have to re- Re-establish trust with the government of missouri people do not trust career politicians they don't trust government in missouri and that's why we've said that we believe that there should be term limits for every statewide office holder we've said that we're going to ban all gifts from lobbyists let me say that again we're going to ban all gifts from lobbyists and and also we've said we're going to close the revolving door between legislators and special interests we have to do this if we're going to re-establish trust in missouri and i will tell you our strong and robust uh, ethics program, it's got a lot of the insiders scared. And that's why you've seen, you know, a lot of the, the establishment Republicans and, and people in the Democrat Party come out to to attack me because they know that we're we're serious about this. Let's sure. talk
0: about Ferguson a little bit. Yeah. Because I was at the final meeting of the Ferguson Commission a couple yeah. months ago, and the Reverend Starsky Wilson said that it's gonna be a big challenge to all the gubernatorial candidates to take what was in the Ferguson Commission report and actually act on some of the recommendations, not just pay lip service to them. And there are a lot of recommendations in there that I'm sure that you're not going to agree with, whether it be raising the minimum wage or expanding Medicaid, but many of them involve changing law enforcement, whether it be more robust body camera systems for police officers, more training for police officers, or changing the use of force. I want to know, how seriously are you going to take the Ferguson Commission report and kind of touch on more what you said before about safety and security in light of the unrest that happened at Ferguson.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, about me being from Parkway North High School is a good friend of mine named Harlan Hodge. I've been friends with Harlan since I was 15 years old. When Ferguson happened, I called Harlan. Harlan picks up the phone and he says, I know why you're calling. And yes, I'll go with you. Harlan and I went down to Ferguson. Because like I said, I believe that if you're going to be a leader, you have to understand problems by seeing them with your own eyes, by talking with real people. Now, was this while the uh, protests were This is while on? the protests okay. were going on. It's okay. while the unrest was going. It's, it's while they were shooting in the air. It was burning. And Harlan and I went down there. And look, everybody saw this. But I can tell you from my own eyes, what I saw, my feeling was, the great tragedy of Ferguson was that if we had had a leader who had shown up, With any kind of command presence and courage and calm and clarity, we could have had peace by the second night. But our governor hid from Ferguson. Our chief law enforcement officer hid from Ferguson. We did not have that leadership that we needed on the front lines. The first thing that you have to do if you're going to solve these problems is that you have to go to them. And look, I walked around Ferguson. I talked with dozens of the people who were out there protesting. And I just asked them, I said, tell me, why are you out here? And you go out and you listen to people, and you hear the anger and the fear and the frustration that's there. I also talked with our police officers, St. Louis City, St. Louis County, Missouri Highway Patrol, who were out there who felt that they had been abandoned. You had protesters who wanted to be heard, who were ignored. You had police who needed to be supported, who were abandoned and we could talk in detail about what I would have done differently so what would you
0: have done differently well
1: well first of all one of the things that you have to do when people are afraid and they're angry and they're fearful you have to communicate with them you have to be constantly communicating there was no message from the governor cuz he was hiding there was no message from the chief law enforcement officer cuz they were hiding and you have to let people know what your plan is to create peace you also have to in a very concrete way give people an outlet For their anger and their fear and what I would have said Jason I said look first we're gonna put on a dusk to dawn curfew we're gonna create a situation of security and stability there's a dusk to dawn curfew and when the Sun goes down and I'll tell you I was on the street as the Sun went down and you could see mothers and kids leaving the crowd and drunk guys walking in what I would have said is when the Sun goes down I am gonna be in this church and I'm gonna be there with the mayor, I'm gonna be there with the chief of police, I'm gonna be there with any church leaders who are willing to join me, and I will stay there until the sun comes up and I am willing to listen to and to hear from anyone who's hurting who's on the front lines. That's the kind of leadership that the people deserve, that's the kind of leadership that we can have in Missouri. And when it comes to how you know what are you gonna to do today, you have to have the same kind of leadership. Here's, here's what I believe. I believe that we actually have an incredible opportunity here. So here's the opportunity. If you had said to a lot of people 18 months ago or two years ago, tell me about Ferguson, Missouri, nobody would have known. Well, they wouldn't have known what's happening in Ferguson. People now know that there's a problem. People now know that there's a challenge. People now know that there are kids down there, a lot of those kids who can't read, who feel disconnected. People know that there's a challenge. And I believe, you know, I mentioned to you my mom was an early childhood special education teacher. She's done incredible work for decades. If I go to my mom, if I go to other people in Kiwanis clubs, in Optimist clubs, and I ask them to volunteer, to get engaged, to get engaged with the Boys and Girls clubs, to get engaged in schools to help to tutor these kids give them a sense of belonging provide them provide them and their families support people are willing to step forward and i know this because i've done it when I ran The Mission Continues, we've had over 100,000 volunteers who came out and served with us, who worked beside us. People are willing to step forward. They are willing to take on tough missions, but they need a leader who recognizes their strengths and who's willing to call on them. And I think we can do that here in Missouri.
0: Now, the reason people were out there protesting is, especially among the African-American protesters, they feel that there's a disconnect between law enforcement and the African-American population, not just in Ferguson, but throughout St. Louis.
2: Well, and it's not just- law enforcement they also believe that I mean they also see economic disparity I as mean, well there's, there's a lot of you know and some of this goes back decades yes. but it really came to a do, uh, yeah
0: do you feel like the protesters have a valid concern there and if so what would you do about it as governor
1: look there are people protesters and around Missouri who have a whole series of concerns that are valid they feel like they are disconnected from their government they feel like government isn't working for them. They feel like they don't have any voice in government. And then these problems happen, and again, the leaders aren't even don't even have the courage to go to the front lines and to listen to them. I think you guys may know, when I came back from Iraq, one of the things that I did, you know, we were working in a very violent, difficult, terrible situation in Fallujah. Every time we left the compound, we'd get RPGs shot at us, snipers would shoot at us, IEDs would go off, we were part of a team though, and this wasn't just me, it wasn't just my team that was able to create substantial peace and security in Fallujah. So when I came home, one of the things that happened is that there were a number of police organizations who asked me to come out and to work with them. And I'll tell you, there's amazing things that we can do together as as a community. One of the things that we have to do very clearly is we have to demonstrate that our police officers have our support. It's one of the first things that we have to do. Our law enforcement officers do some of the most difficult, dangerous work in the community, and they deserve to have somebody who really understands what it means to put on body armor and wear a sidearm, who understands what it means to step into the dark and do dangerous work. Now, one of the things that I did, for example, with police officers, when I set up a program called the Complete Warrior Training Program, we asked our police officers to do a ropes course with fifth, sixth, and seventh grade kids in the community. Think about what happens when police officers really get to know those young kids in their community. They establish real quality relationships. We have to do things like that in places like Ferguson and empower our police officers so they have the equipment, the training, and the support that they need to do their job.
2: Now, so far, though, it's not like Ferguson has been a big issue on the campaign trail among the Republicans. I mean, usually debates, it doesn't even come up. Um, I've been in Jeff City uh, several times. Legislative leaders, for the most part, want to move on beyond the court reforms that were done last year. How do you get uh, the Republican rank and file to even listen to you on this? And B, how big of an issue do you think is going to be on the campaign trail?
1: Well, I'll tell you what's a huge issue on the campaign trail is the fact that people are hurting across Missouri. And in some of the ways that they're hurting in Ferguson, we see people hurting all over Missouri, you know, all over Missouri. Right now, only one in four of our fourth graders are reading at proficiency. You look all over Missouri, they just did a study of all of the 50 states of our abilities to move people off of welfare to work. And out of all 50 states, Missouri ranks 50th. That's a problem not just in Ferguson but throughout Missouri. You talk to people around Missouri who are out of work, businesses who are leaving Missouri. These are major issues that we are facing, and absolutely I am going to bring the legislature's attention, the Republican Party's attention, and the attention of leaders throughout Missouri to address these issues. Now I want to talk
0: about a couple more issues before we delve into the political side of the gubernatorial race. I'm going to play a clip now actually from 2008, and it's actually from a YouTube video that I created then with a (laughs) point-and-shoot. Camera, so if the audio quality <laughs> is not good, I apologize sure to our listeners. All right, but it is Governor, then Attorney General Jay Nixon speaking at an event in Jefferson City, and the, this was at a time when the legislature was kind of paralyzed on the education front because anything that was deemed a quote voucher bill caused a lot of consternation. And the reason why I'm bringing this up now is there were two instances in the last couple of years where. Governor Nixon vetoed changes to the school transfer laws. Um, one of them had a provision that would have allowed people to send their kids from a, a failing public school to a non-sectarian private school. This is the line that Governor Jay Nixon drew in the sand in 2008, and then I will ask you a question afterwards. Sure. Now my opponent has proposed yet another one of their voucher schemes, calling for taxpayer dollars. Subsidize individual contributions to private schools. Folks, let's be real clear, no matter which way they call it, no matter what moniker they try to put on it, when you take public dollars and give those dollars to private schools, you are underfunding and cutting public schools, and that's a voucher, and if it gets to my desk, I'll veto. So in many respects, as I kind of alluded to, Governor Nixon has followed through on that promise. If he's seen a bill that he's deemed to be a, quote, voucher bill, he has vetoed it. I want to know, and I'm sure that a lot of education people want to know sure. which, whether you would take that similar stance.
1: Uh, no. Look, get Governor Nixon, what's so terrible about that answer that you heard is that he didn't talk at all about kids. Okay. Here's my line in the sand. My line in the sand is that we're going to do whatever is right for kids. And we're actually going to look at results. And what matters at the end of the day is if our kids can read if our kids can do math if our kids can spell we owe those kids a fair shot at the american dream and i think it's terrible for any politician to take something off of the table for political reasons that might actually help our kids if it's gonna work for our kids then you need to give it a shot and my experience of doing this comes again from what i've done on the ground you know i've worked in bosnia in places where kids had lost everything. Their families had lost their homes. And I saw what happened when they set up a school with no budget in the middle of an open field. I mentioned to you I worked in one of Mother Trace's homes for the destitute and dying. I've seen what her sisters of charity can do in incredibly poor environments. I worked in a home for children of the street in Bolivia, and I saw how they could educate those kids. No politician should draw any line in the sand and take anything off of the table that has a shot at helping our kids and helping their parents. So So if
0: you had a bill that had a provision in it that allowed people in unaccredited school districts to allow their kids to transfer to a private school of some sort, you would not just dismiss that type of bill off the table. Is that what you're saying? I
1: will consider anything that will make our schools better for our kids. I will consider anything where there is quality evidence to show me that this is gonna change the lives of our kids. You know, I mentioned that girl who I saw down at, um, uh, down at Roberson Elementary. I, you guys mentioned that the books that I've written. I've written one book for kids. It's called The Warrior's Heart. And when I wrote that book, I also did lots of visits to schools, and you visit middle schools, and you talk with these kids. Those kids don't have a lobbyist, those kids do not have any political professionals in Jefferson City who are working for them, but they deserve to have somebody who's willing to fight for them. And the way that you do that is you ask the hard question, what works for kids? And if it works for kids, I'm going to be behind it.
2: Now, amid all this, uh, there In the Republican campaign, there's been actually probably more attention, less attention on your stances on issues, and more attention on the fact that, A, you're the biggest uh, campaign fundraiser within the uh, Republican Party. In fact, uh, the last couple months, you've actually outraised Chris Coster, the Missouri Attorney General and likely Democratic nominee. And there's been a lot of attention over some of your donors, like one of your donors in California, a venture capitalist, has given you a million dollars. So my question is, A... Why, and this isn't just for you. Why sure. When someone gives a candidate a million dollars, and there's one of the other Republican candidates has someone similar, uh, but a what do they want for that? And b how do you, did you get so many major people in New York, uh, Chicago, California? to give you sizable sums.
1: Sure, I'll, I'll do B first and then, okay. and then, and then A. So uh, first of all, as you know, I've never run for office before. And the big question when we started was, can you actually raise the money in order to run a competitive race? It was a big question that, that people asked. I'm really proud of the organization that we've built. I'm really proud of the fact that since January 1st of last year, 2015, just in Missouri dollars, we've outraised Peter Kinder more than two to one. Just in Missouri dollars, we've outraised Katherine Hanway more than two to one. Just in Missouri dollars, we've outraised John Bruner more than three to one. And of course, we have a lot of donors, as you mentioned, from around the country who are also supporting this campaign because they got to know me as a leader. Many of them were philanthropic investors, they'd invested in The Mission Continues, and they saw what I was able to do. They're also conservatives, they share my political philosophy, and when they heard that I was running for office, they wanted to get behind this campaign because they believe that we have to have quality citizen leaders in government. You know, people believe, as I do, that politics should be an honorable profession in which proven leaders engage for a short period of time rather than this permanent lifetime game in which career politicians you know shrink from facing the hard problems all around us so i was i was heartened and inspired when i stepped forward to do this we had people around missouri and around the country who said eric i know you I know you're a leader i know you're strong i know you're compassionate i know you can make a difference and i'm going to get behind you
0: and so kind of shifting to policy yes. now you've mentioned ethics and i think there's some who assume that because you've taken these large contributions you're probably not a fan of campaign contribution limits along with the, the rest of the republican field that oppose them and chris goster who doesn't oppose them either is that a fair assumption
1: uh, i i think that we need to have a strong ethical culture and what i've found And I'll tell you again, I'm completely new to politics. This is my first time in. But what I found is that the most important thing is that there's transparency around the money. We've already seen other candidates set up these secretive super PACs where they don't take any... Uh, Responsibility for what they're funding. We saw secretive super PACs who are attacking Tom Schweik, where people hide behind these other organizations. And there will probably be more. And and there will probably be more because that's how the game has always been played. I've been very proud to tell people I'm stepping forward and you can see every single one of our donors because we're proud of our donors and we're proud of the campaign that we are running.
2: I did want to get you to talk about this million dollar donor in California
1: you know Mike Gogan is a major investor in this campaign he's somebody who's gotten to know what I've done for the mission continues he is a patriot he's a great supporter of the Second Amendment he's someone who believes that we have to have strong conservative leadership uh, in, in the country and just like philanthropic donors you know I raised millions of dollars for the mission continues around the country there were people who were willing to invest because they care about the future of the country Mike's done well for himself he cares about the future of the Country and he, I'm honored that he's invested in my leadership.
2: Now the Democrats have also gone after one of your donors because he's running into some legal problems. Uh, uh, any thoughts about whether or not a candidate, you or anybody else, should return money if the candidate has it runs afoul of the law or is accused of it?
1: Yeah, well, as, as you've seen from the press releases that the Democrat Party is putting out, they are attacking me because they are scared of this campaign. They're scared that we're coming to put an end to their insider games. They're scared that we're coming to change politics as usual. And one of the reasons why, um, why I think it's important that we do this, you know, Chris Coster, there was a front page story. On the New York Times about the most corrupt attorney generals, and Chris Coster was the poster child for corrupt attorney generals. And I think it's you know it, it's enlightening to see that the Democrats are coming to try and attack attack me, and they're defending a guy who's one of the right. most corrupt attorney generals. And we generals only have a few more minutes, yes, but I yes, did yes, want please, to get Jason, in, I did yeah. want
0: to get into this part too of the political aspect is that you used to be a Democrat, you even have written a an op-ed about yeah. it, and although you have attracted the support of some. Very conservative people like John Lamping and Jim Lemke and Jane Cunningham. There are some Republicans who, frankly, don't believe your conservative credentials and think that you're a a Democrat in Republican's clothing, essentially, similar to maybe how some on the left consider Coster to be a Republican in Democrat's clothing because he used to be one. So how do you respond to that criticism?
1: Well, look, we've been very straightforward with people. I was born and raised a Democrat. Uh, My parents were Democrats, I think I learned in third grade that Harry Truman was the greatest person who'd ever walked the face of the earth. I like John F. Kennedy when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I'm a Republican and a conservative, not by birth, but by conviction. And that conviction has been has come from my experiences—the experience of serving as a Navy SEAL during four tours in the Global War on Terrorism, the experience of running my own business, the experience of seeing what the government bureaucracy did to my friends. All of those things have shaped my conservative philosophy. And of course, our opponents are going to attack us because they're scared that we're not uh, that we're we're running this campaign to change Missouri.
0: I think we're out of time now, so we're going to cut it short there. But we appreciate you coming here. And- Jason,
1: thank you so much for having me on. Joe, I really appreciate and, it.
0: Well, it was a pleasure having you. And, and by the way, we should also note that uh, Vince McMahon has Endorsed in this race, and he has given I think you twenty five hundred dollars. So I hope to see you him and Seamus campaigning with you in in on the stump, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you. I had to get a pro wrestling reference in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. uh, to follow uh-huh. our stories, stlpublicradio.org Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at
2: Jay manis That's J M A N N I E S. And you
0: could follow uh, Eric Greitens on Twitter at
1: Absolutely, at Eric Greitens, or check out, check out our website, ericreitens.com.
0: We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.
1: I'm a shade